Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter on Substack. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr, and our webpage is at georgefairbrother.com. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello and thank you for listening. We're back with part two of our deep dive into Elvis Aloha from Hawaii with Gary Wells. show was at 8.30pm on the 12th of January. Now, we know that the set list for the shows was worked on um, between Elvis, Red West and Charlie Hodge. They obviously had to be mindful of the fact that uh, Live at Madison Square Garden had only come out really a matter of of months before, so uh, they obviously didn't want to be too repetitive. It must have been a bit of a tricky, tricky balancing act because they obviously had to include a lot of the hits as well. Writer and critic Dave Marsh has uh, written about the rehearsal show and the satellite show. Now, he was of the opinion that not only was the uh, dress rehearsal better than the satellite show, it was about the best Elvis concert of the 70s that was captured on film or, or on video. He said this, Elvis looks lean, acts loose and lets go musically as he rarely did. Burton's guitar is on fire and Tup literally plays up a storm. There isn't a better record in video, film or audio of what Elvis did once he standardised the 70s show. Elvis radiates healthiness and sings fabulously. So this um, was the dress rehearsal. He also lamented the fact that the dress rehearsal concert wasn't available to see until many, many years later when it was released. How do you see how it all came together musically? It's interesting you talk about the set list had to be kind of unique for this show. Good songs, highlight songs, songs they 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 do well, obviously, but the spectrum, you know, it has to be crowd pleasers, set pieces, ticking all the boxes. Elvis loved so many different genres of music. So it had to be, I guess, a good representation. I like what Marsh says about standardizing the 70s show. Maybe this is the paradigm of the 70s show. The best a 70s show could be in terms of music, pacing, spectrum of songs, Aloha is, is of course, the, the prototype of, 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 a, of a great 70s show. So you mentioned hits, yes, you know, some current songs, some old favorites. Uh, so the music, right from the, from the start, I guess, to the, to the ending with some highlights along the way, all the boxes checked and uh, the rehearsal show, I guess what Marsh is talking about is maybe because it's not the big event, maybe Elvis is a little bit looser. And it's maybe less polished and clean, which is which is has its merit, of course. The rehearsal show is is interesting to watch. A couple of observations about the rehearsal show. There were certainly quite a few stumbles over verses and a few little mistakes. Also, as Elvis is walking to the front catwalk, he also snagged the mic cord at one point, um, which annoyed him. And it, it just sort of goes to show just how many just little things can go wrong. Um, you know, it's an insignificant thing that sort of threw him off his threw him sort of you know perhaps off balance for a split second. So all of these little things uh, that you have to get right. It highlights for Elvis the things that, oh, I blew that lyric or I need to focus on those words because I forget them and, and, and perhaps cue cards or whatever. But And that part of the stage, you know, I, I got to be aware of where I'm walking. And, and so the rehearsal was multi-purpose for musically plus motion, walking, you know, mic cords. So it really served a lot of purposes. Uh, it's funny, uh, 
Dave Marsh, like I have in my notes here, it lacks a certain dynamism, the rehearsal show. Maybe he's just feeling his way or, or getting a feel for the room or for the arena or for how this is going to go. But perhaps the polish of, of the finished article is so apparent that the rehearsal seems odd to me. But aside from the lyrics, and I noticed, I think, during my way, he came in just just a, a little bit late, which I thought would throw his band off. Silly of me to think that. But little things that the rehearsal was going to work out. Something I noticed um, visually was in the rehearsal, uh, the lay that Elvis had on for a good part of that was very soft colours. It was sort of pastels, whereas in the satellite show, and actually I think that diminished the costume a little bit, whereas in the satellite show, scarves and lays were all very bright contrasting colours, which actually lifted the costume. So I guess that's, you know, now we don't know who perhaps spotted that. It might have been Marty Persetta that suggested that or, or whoever. But, you know, that was just one little detail once again that they ironed out and got right for the satellite broadcast. Pasetta, a master of a visual presentation of something like this. It's funny. I love that those that that lavender and yellow color whatever together, but they certainly don't go with the jumpsuit as well as the popping red lays of the and it's funny how many images through history, how many black velvet paintings or those cheap looking clocks on wood and it's always an image from this show because there was some good jumpsuits but is this not the iconic jumpsuit the the iconic look aside from the scowling menace of 56 this image of elvis in this american eagle jumpsuit and i read that it was one of the few requests he ever made of bill his jumpsuit maker was something that says america I don't know what, and look at the collar. The collar, we can talk about Elvis's preferences for collars, but I used to joke with my children, the collar is is way high, half up his head, and it's not really even up. If he flipped the collar up, it's like a hood. I can't, I can't get over the tentativeness, the way he comes out of the wings, uh, settles into something that would comfort him and settle him like C.C. Ryder. And of course, Burning Love, a big hit at the time. And then he seems to loosen up. And as soon as he sheds that guitar, he starts to stalk around the stage, dealing with the fans. And you can see him starting to loosen up. And then we hit some really good high points through the set list as he goes through the concert. The uh, rehearsal show was the 12th at a very respectable time, 8.30pm. The next day was spent rehearsal sound checks and obviously ironing out the last minute crises before showtime at 12.30 in the morning on January the 14th. For me, the moment that breaks the ice is uh, You Gave Me a Mountain because that just comes together with such power and perfect precision. I think that when they have that one under their belts, I think he relaxes a little bit and starts to have some fun because they can see that it's going to be a great show. You Gave Me a Mountain is the first one. You're right on that. Marty Robbins, my man, wrote it and recorded it. It's funny when you go back to listen to it very, and it's so often when Elvis covers a song, he takes it up to the nth degree. Uh, it is the first big moment but I'm telling you, it's for odd, well, it's for different reasons. I, there's a, a, a frailty in the lyric because it's about struggles and it's about, you know, it's about failures. And as a kid, I couldn't help but 
think of the, the, the line about my woman got tired of the heartache. And if you know Elvis World, it's right around this point that him and Priscilla are, are splitting up. And he even kind of grimaces at that lyric. And it's maybe it's a cliche to think that he's channeling that. But at the same time, the man's getting divorced and singing about a divorce. I always thought about that. And of course, I, I would always joke to myself, interesting, you know, no more wedding ring on that finger and that's sad, but he seems to have recovered to the extent that he can put a big, massive, golden, square, billboard-looking ring on that finger. So, I used to joke to myself, I think he's recovering okay, but it's the, <laughs> yes. first, it's the first tune he can really bite into, you're right, and, and, and like you say, once they got that done, everybody's, oh, okay, everybody must be saying, okay, this is the pocket, we're in the pocket, look out, we are dialed in, this is going to be amazing. And there's a few more points afterwards that, that, that they reach the transcendent, and it's really pivotal in Elvis's story to mark some of these. I, I got to go on to Steamroller Blues. It's interesting, James Taylor wrote that tune. He had said that he saw all these young white kids adopting the blues and in a posturing sort of way. So, with his tongue-in-cheek, he wrote this song as a bit of a, a, a jokey dig. Let me see if I can write this really cliche blues song. And his version is okay, but I mean, Elvis, you know what? The visual image, you talk about his band being in sync with him. When he's in the pocket in the middle of the song, the camera will pan over. The singers, the backup group is not singing. They're sitting but they're all clapping and rocking back and forth. I mean, they are fans. They are into it. And as a fan watching, oh, you get pumped. And he tears the head off that song. And, and Glenn Harden with his fantastic solo. So we've had two, two points so far. One is a, a kind of a dramatic showpiece, a Sinatra-style acting in song. And then we go back to the blues, the, the, the beginning of everybody's origins in music, and he's nailed that one as well. So, we're certainly on fire now. We go into My Way. I've, uh, I don't know, man. My Way is a funny one because people, people will ask me, who did it better? Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley. Most people know Paul Anka wrote English lyrics to a French tune with Sinatra in mind. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a trademark of maybe both singers, but it hasn't really aged well. Similarly, in Sinatra circles, Strangers in the Night, uh, non-fans, oh yeah, I love it. Real fans know that that is not, Sinatra didn't really like it, nobody really cares for it. My way, Sinatra would joke, well, we're now going to sing the national anthem, you know, I'm contractually ob obligated to sing this. So, it became a bit of a joke because of the pomposity of the lyric. The lyric is a little bit overblown and over the top, and here's me, I'm so great, and I did it my way, and nobody... So, in a way, it, it's, it's perfect, but unfortunately, it's in a bit of a, a parody, a, a cliche way. My main problem with Elvis singing My Way, and I even hate to bring it up, but you know, you could argue that through his career, Elvis did not do it his way. And I don't think that's even going to blow anybody's mind. Look at all the years in Hollywood. And everybody asked me, non-fans challenged me, why did he keep making those movies? Well, why did he stay with Colonel? Why did he... So, did he take the easy road? A lot of times... I'm sad watching Elvis sing, you know, I took the blows and I did it my way. Well, 
I, I just hate to say that he didn't really. Now, as a showpiece, it's wonderful. The big final note he hits, and it's magnificent. And as a kid, before I got bummed out by learning all these real things about the song, it was amazing. It's, it's a great final note. And again, he's, he's off to the races. Now, it's over was a real sleeper for me. I, I, I didn't realize Jimmy Rogers recorded it in 66. It was a top 40 hit for him. But through the years, devastating lyrics, devastating. And the way he sings them, you know, if time were not a moving thing, like it, it's really a really moving song. And if you want deep cuts, hidden gems, whatever, the Elvis songs you've never heard, it's over. It's just incredibly moving. And in his hands, it's wonderful. Then, I mean, I Can't Stop Loving You is the perfect example of what Presley did, a country song that he injects with this his blue-eyed soul R&B voice and the way he rips into it with that ferocious start and you gotta love from the from the actual concert when he goes down to get a lay from that one woman or something and you distinctly hear her say oh elvis i love you and when i'm a kid i'd be cheering yeah i love you too buddy go go get him it's a great example of what he did so well i can't stop loving you so we're going almost you know the, the big You Gave Me a Mountain, the gritty steamroller blues, the bombastic My Way, the touching It's Over, the ferocious I Can't Stop Loving You, and then What Now My Love, like it, I can almost get emotional talking about it. It is such, now it's one of my favorite songs of all time because no matter what arrangement you give it, it's a wonderful song. It's a wonderful melody. One of my favorites is by Herb Alpert who gives it a great bouncy arrangement. It's the composition itself. Yes, it's a fantastic song in anybody's hands, but I'm telling you, you could pick, is it five, six, seven, maybe four performances from Elvis's career that you would, you would play for the uninitiated to say, to answer your question, what is Elvis so good at? What does he do? What Now My Love is, is majestic. When they come in for the final, the band swells, the background singers come in. It is, it is compelling, dramatic. It is, it, is, it is majestic, and it's just drama. And again, it's 70s. Look at the suit. Look at the hair. Look at the size of the collar, and the size of the song fits in. It's just, it's just magnificent. And then Suspicious Minds was funny for me because I grew up on Aloha from Hawaii, so I th this version of Suspicious Minds was the first one I'd ever heard. So when I heard the studio, and almost everybody will say his finest recording, his masterpiece, his big hit, the studio version is so different, really. But it's, it's much cleaner, of course. It is pristine. But as a showpiece here, and it irks me a little bit how he would almost speed up every song in concert to increase I don't know what but it's a little bit faster it's looser it's just a great showpiece the way he breaks it down in, in the bridge there and worries about tearing his suit it's classic it's a crowd pleaser it's fun it's a, it's a great point for him to to stop and introduce his band which maybe bears noting because the band is on fire it's a great lineup of people and I think it's uh, Imperials earlier uh, backup singers, which it, I was much older by the time I realized they even existed. Because for me, when I was a kid, it was J.D. Sumner here. So uh, Suspicious Minds is a great event song. 
and then to take a break and a breath and talk about the band, uh, it, it's it's a it's an excellent point in in the concert for him to introduce the the, the fellas. Yes, of course. So this is the um, of all the times and places. The guy that gives me my scarves and sings harmony with me and General Flunky. His name is Charlie Hodge. Poor Charlie. Like me, you know everybody's jokey and and Charlie's cool with it. But dang, yeah, he's he uses the word flunky. Unreal. I mean, Charlie Hodge really should have had a co-producer credit for the for the shows and was a vocal coach and harmony singer. And he was f- so much more than um, someone who handed scarves and, you know, water at the appropriate time. My young children, uh, you know, you can learn... F- you can learn from kids. My young son snickers at Charlie Hodge because he says all the times Elvis cracks a joke, you hear Charlie's ridiculously loud laugh and it sounds so pandering to Elvis that that's the impression a young child gets and made me stop and think, well, Charlie maybe gets short shrift because of that appearance of just being his boy. But talk about, you know, you hear about behind the scenes singing around the piano late at night. It was Charlie who knew every gospel song and sang with him on record in concert everywhere so charlie needs uh some more love for sure even though he has that goofy persona he was not a goof no no definitely not just uh, an observation too going back to my way it's interesting that there's a discreetly placed easel with the words that elvis is reading from at least from in the early verses and we know also there were some uh cue cards visible in fact, we'll post one in the in the newsletter. Uh, the words to "Welcome to My World" that were being held up in in cue cards, and you know, in later years, people seem to get and critics seem to get awfully upset by the fact that Elvis would read from lyric sheets occasionally. But I mean, if you look at some of the stadium performers now, I mean, there are auto cues on on stage, and I don't think anybody even try tries to hide it. So it really wasn't you know it wasn't anything unusual, but um, it was just interesting that that was there. And I wonder if that had been planned all along, or whether or not that might have been in response to the fact that they did make a few little mistakes in the rehearsal show. I can imagine that they would have wanted to cover all bases, sure. I mean, even in That's the Way It Is, they joke about taping the words to Just Can't Help Believing on a stool, and and it's surprising. For, for for laymen to think that a, a performer wouldn't know the lyrics to all the songs because that's their job. But at the same time, you think, how many songs do they sing and record throughout their lifetime? It's, 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 it's millions of words and lyrics. So the idea that they had cue cards set up, if anything, it's a big deal. I can't flub a lyric and go back to the beginning here. This is This is via satellite. So covering all the bases, professionals. So it certainly made sense. I grew up knowing this band. I mean, J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, they, they, they shine in concert through the 70s. They are an, an integral part. We talk about the spectrum and, and all the boxes checked. And I remember reading about, you know, J.D. Sumner and the Stamps, that gospel quartet thing Elvis liked. Then there's the sweet inspirations for that black soul sound that Elvis loved. Chicken Pickin' James Burton, who's got that pristine, perfect guitar sound, perhaps is more country than anything, but of course works and goes with Elvis hand in glove, like it went with Ricky Nelson. Fascinating that James Burton, again, had a, a vital career before Elvis. The late, great Ronnie Tutt, who unfortunately just passed away, that pounding rock and roll rock, never mind rock and roll, that 70s 
contemporary looking guy and his style was fantastic. Uh, I know you're a fan of Jerry Sheff, bass player. Uh, you know, he's he's a, a virtuoso player. I mean, the bass player's bass player. Uh, I, I love Glenn Harden. Can he ever play for one thing? But you got to have a guy to arrange the, the music and to look after the songs. And with Glenn and with Charlie Hodge, Elvis was in good hands. They knew Elvis. They know him. And uh, they also know, you know, music and they're skilled at what they do. The Joe Gershio Orchestra with some key players, everything was in place. Everything was perfect. Like this was bound to succeed because of all these guys coming together with Elvis. We made this point in um, uh, when we were talking Elvis, that's the way it is, that it was hard to imagine more talent together on, on the one stage. We mustn't forget also John Wilkinson, who played uh, rhythm guitar, who in later years would get a very nice solo spot uh, during the shows with Early Morning yes. Rain. Just while we're on the subject of introductions, somebody that was introduced, uh, uh, now a special guest of Elvis at the show was Jack Lord. Now there's a bit of a story around Jack Lord's friendship with Elvis and also the fact uh, um, sort of the invitation that sort of had to be made twice for him to come to the show. Can you, before we sort of get to the last half of the show or the last portion of the show, can you perhaps just talk us a little bit through um, the Jack Lord relationship and, and the saga around his invitation? Oh, I would be happy to because you talk about boxes checked. Elvis Presley and Jack Lord? Oh, these two, oh. Anyways, um, as everybody knows, Jack Lord was making Hawaii Five O in Hawaii at the time. It had been going for already four or five seasons. And the thing about Jack Lord, I, I profiled him on my website recently. It's it's a popular article that gets read a lot. He moved his operation to Hawaii, which was new for a television show. And talk about talk about Don Ho. Jack Lord became the guy in Hawaii. He was a major player. He ran his own show. But uh, Elvis was a big fan. And you talk about introductions. Fascinating that at the business point of the show, he makes a point of introducing his band, which he would do throughout the 70s. Of course, classy. Everybody everybody did it. But as classy, this is the, the band. These are their names. And they're all contributing here. And the only other person he introduces from the stage is Jack Lord. Jack was Jack had been interviewed and in my article I specify and I had I had dug up the little nugget that he sent. He sent Colonel Parker, Colonel Parker to Jack Lord to make sure that the invitation was reiterated, I want you at the show. So there was a couple of times that Jack was approached, no no, really, it's not just a professional courtesy thing. Elvis wants you there. So Jack was at the show. There's a picture I've seen of Jack shaking Linda Thompson's hand, Elvis's girlfriend at the time. Jack was Jack was big in Hawaii. So it was, again, the Hawaiian connection. Wonderful to have Jack there. And Jack got some love from the crowd. One of my favorite actors in the audience, Jack Lord. I got to say that, you know, Hawaii Five-O. So after the show, Jack and Marie... Lord met Elvis backstage and, and Jack invited everybody over to back to his condo, not thinking that they would make, make it, but they did. They all showed up, made themselves comfortable. Jack was half a musician himself and had some antique instruments around the place. Elvis admired an old uh, six-string banjo that Jack had. And of course, Jack gifted Elvis with that. And uh, there's you can you can find a lot of stuff on the internet about gifts 
the two gave each other back and forth. Uh, Elvis at, at at this time, who knows how Elvis had this on him or got this, but he, he gifted Jack with a gun, a Walter PPK actually. And it was in a nice case, gold. And uh, my article has a nice picture of it. And uh, there was even some bullets lined up nicely with the gun. And Elvis said to Jack, here's, here's a nice gun with some bullets as well, just in case you ever need them, Jack. And uh, so there was lots of laughs back and forth. I think it was about a month later even, uh, Jack and Marie were in Las Vegas to see Elvis and uh, Elvis introduced him from the stage again and he got rousing applause and Elvis even said, okay, sit down, Jack, you're getting more applause than me. So it was, it was a really cool thing and the two of them, the two of them were obvious dudes and the fact that they love e- loved each other and dug each other is a great aspect of each other's story. So that was a cool little part of this whole Hawaiian adventure. And we will uh, definitely link uh, to your article on Jack Lord from the newsletter because that really is a, a fascinating piece. We neglected to mention Kathy Westmoreland when we were talking about the band, but her, you know, soprano just soars above everything beautifully. So she was also an absolutely critical singer. So they get the introductions out of the way and we're now sort of on the home stretch of the show. Um, Gary, how do you see the show running to its conclusion? Well, again, What Now My Love, it's amazing that these two performances are in the same concert. What Now My Love and Mickey Newberry's An American Trilogy. I got fascinated with Mickey and looked him up, and again, he wrote this song, and his original version was half a hit, kind of, but it's Again, in Presley's hands, interesting though, when you talk about Presley's cover versions, you can tell when he's a stone cold fan of a version. Look at Love Letters. He recorded a couple of times. It's note for note for Kitty Callan's hit version. Even piano trills and whatnot. When he loved a song, he recorded it Hurt by Timmy Euro. He recorded it just like the original. But then other times, look at You've Lost That Love and Feeling. He takes an original, finds the soul or the heart of it, and just blows it up 10 times. So Mickey Newberry's slight version, an American trilogy, you could do a podcast on this one song. Fascinating that it can almost be an anthem of reconciliation in a way because it contains, it's a medley, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was the marching song or or the song of the Union Army during the Civil War. It's also Dixie, which was a a Southern anthem favored in the South. And it got All My Trials in there, which is an an African-American, it's a Negro spiritual, like a field song from back in the day. So the three aspects of American history are represented in the song and they're melded together, which we could get deep into the weeds and say, you could point to this as an instance where Elvis is, you know, bringing the country together almost. Sure, that wasn't his thing. It wasn't, that wasn't what he did. But look at, look at this song from that standpoint. Now, that's just the song's construction and the lyric. The performance is utterly magnificent. It may be the single grandest moment of his whole career. And again, maybe you should look at these things like a child. When I was a kid and he sang the All My Trials part, when he sings All My Trials, Lord, Will Soon Be Over... I mean, we could get a a little bit deep and dramatic and say the man only had four years left to live. I used to get really sad when he sang that. 
And because he's sweating so much, you could even, it looks like he's emotional or crying and all my trials will soon be over. And, and it's, it's, it's touching. And then we have another highlight performance that I think you've dug up some info on this flute player in the band. What a moment for this man. Yes, Gabe Baltazar Jr., born 1929, and uh, as we record, he is he is still with us. Hard to imagine ever in the history of any kind of entertainment a musician being under any more pressure to get it right. And interestingly, in the rehearsal concert, I think he did make a little mistake. There is just a little off note um, when he did that in the rehearsal concert. On the big stage, he's ab- absolutely impeccable. Now, uh, yes, Gabe Baltazar Jr., he was a Korean War veteran, a sax player, uh, as well as um, a flautist, uh, played uh, jazz. Um, he played with a Stan Kenton orchestra featuring on 17 LPs. Now, between 1965 and 69, he worked in Los Angeles, principally for NBC, which is interesting. He played on um, Pat Boone's programs, uh, Phyllis Diller, Johnny Carson, but also Smothers Brothers and Glenn Campbell programming, which Marty Pesetta had also um, involvement in. So I guess we can surmise that he was perhaps brought in especially for that particular moment because we we don't believe that he had prior connections with Joe Gershow or the uh, Las Vegas scene that Joe Gershow came from. He actually, now Gabe Baltazar returned to Hawaii in 1969 to become assistant director of the Royal Hawaiian Band. So at that point, he was a local Hawaiian musician, but really just a perfect performance and he is rewarded, you know, fittingly with that great close-up. It is dramatic and it is emotional. Gabe finishes his solo. The orchestra is beginning to swell and we see Elvis who is dialed right in and, and he is a fan at this moment. He is loving it. He And maybe even subconsciously, he realizes that he is conquering the world at this moment. The band is swelling I'm telling you, when the trumpets start blasting their glory, glory, hallelujah, you could be on the floor, George. This is a moment in Elvis's story that is just staggering. And he yells at them. He's urging them on. He's, he's, he's c- calling for them to blow, just like a, a jazz man would in a club. Like he's, he's calling to them. And when he gestures to the stamps to come in, he points at them and he makes a mean face like this is just perfect, he's saying to himself. He points to them. They come in with their glory. Hallelujah. He turns to the stage or to the crowd, sorry. And when he finishes that song, it is everything is... Do I have the words when the, the, the final moments of that song is just everything that is cool good, majestic, and grand about Elvis Presley is in that four minutes or whatever it is, when he finishes that, you are on the floor. It is a moment not only in Elvis' world, but for the ages. So those four and a half minutes, you could even pick it apart. His gestures, he is dialed in. It is absolutely magnificent. It's as perfect a version of that song or perhaps any song that that really has ever been done and it was the perfect stage to do it on wasn't it I would I would encourage people I mean it's on YouTube I've shared it he is the camera work is good because you see Elvis but also on the screen are the trumpets as they start to play so you can see both things he is looking he's looking he's looking around he's pleased he's smiling he's making that grimace 
He summons the stamps. It is, mag- it is magnificent. It is just a wonderful, wonderful moment <laughs> in life. Let, let's, let's talk straight here. It's just, it's just magnificent. Um, we're really now on the home stretch, the last couple of songs. So how do we, how do we run to the end? What, what happened then? I got to say, I'm really impressed. Big hunk of love. Uh, of all the songs from the 50s, I have a bit of a beef with Elvis, the way he handled his early hits later in the 70s. As a fan of Tom Jones, I've seen him live many times. When he sings his early hits, he he really honors them. He really puts his, his gut into them and he sings them really well still to this day. The man's 82 or whatever. But Elvis, I don't know if it's disdain, but like, you know, the 56 second version of Hound Dog where he doesn't even get to all the lyrics. Like he just seems to to whip through some of those 50 songs where really if they were given a bit of a tweak or, or on a different arrangement. I mean, we've you hear him in concert starting off Hound Dog as a bit of a slow bluesy. So, so you know, things could be done to them to make them contemporary and cool but he seems to gloss over them which which bums me out a little bit so of all the songs big hunk of love i mean he sings all the lyrics for one thing there's a couple of solos glenn harden shines on the piano and and james plays really well his solo as usual but it's a fantastic rendition and and when when he gets to the final lyrics he's spitting them out the 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 orchestra's blasting it is it is just fantastic, and it's it's an interesting that of all the songs from the fifties, maybe he liked that one or whatever. He really punched that one up, and I think Glenn gets a bit of a dousing for his troubles, doesn't he? At that point, since he got a glass of water <laughs> thrown in his direction, <laughs> yes, yeah, playful. It's 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 always it's you never know what you're going to get with yeah. uh, being in Elvis's band. I mean, I remember Ronnie Tut saying. It's like working for a glorified stripper. You had to watch his yes, moves right. and to play accordingly, hit the snare, hit the... But you know what? The ending of this too is, can't help falling in love. <sighs> Interesting for me to, again, because I started with this. So it was the first rendition I heard. When I heard the hit version from the film Blue Hawaii, it was a bit different. It's a bit emotional to me. It was my wedding song, can't help falling in love. And it's a wonderful recording. And I like the idea that he ends his concerts with it, especially for you, he says, you know, like, I can't help falling in love with you guys, his fans. It's nice. But the recording, I mean, the performance is, is, is fine. But I'm telling you, when he whips the cape off and throws it into the crowd, like, you're thinking, that really happened? I can hardly even believe it. So the cape's got an interesting story, too. It ended up, I think it's at Graceland today. But there was two or three, I think. Wasn't there? Yes, there were t- uh, I think there were two capes. Yeah, there might have been three belts and two capes. I think. Yeah. So, but I'm telling you that that that's huge too. I mean, he's he's dropped the belt earlier. He's thrown the cape. He goes down on his knee, which I've heard, you know, from more maybe cynical press. It's a little bit bombastic. It's a little bit grandiose. He goes down on his knee, but there's something about the closing vamp. The first fan he encounters hands him a crown, and there's something, you could look at it as a non-fan jokingly, oh yeah, the king. But when you think about it, it's poignant. There's something significant about that. He's a humble man, whatever, I'm not the king of anything. The person hands him a crown and he has it from, from the get-go then as he's gesturing to the crowd. He shoots his, his Hawaiian shaka sign to all the, and you can see him mouthing, thank you very much. The place is going bonkers. He's got a crown in his hand and it's like, 
the conquering hero, even the closing vamp as he walks, the first thing he looks down with a a grin and he grabs the crown and he looks at people and people are going bonkers. Even the ending is magnificent and and significant. And it's it just it's a fitting ending because it's grand. He's grabbing hands, he's gesturing. Even the ending, George, is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. The uh, show was reviewed in the Honolulu Advertiser, once again by uh, Wayne Harada, who uh, also wrote the glowing review of Elvis's performances um, there in November. As we said, some of his lines have sort of become almost the official account and have been widely quoted. So um, this is uh, just some of what Wayne Harada had to say. We'll link to the complete review um, in the newsletter, um, which is on elvisconcerts.com. Uh, the HIC Arena, with 6,000 fans, became a super-sized uh, super TV studio for the hour-long spectacle Aloha from Hawaii, which was televised to nearly 40 nations. It was a thrilling compact hour, long on music, loud on screams. Presley performed a total of 25 songs, including a rare and poignant rendition of Kui Lee's I'll Remember You. Like Friday Night's Dress Rehearsal yesterday's performance was a benefit for the Kui Cancer Fund. Perhaps only a phenomenon like Presley could pull off such a coup at such a wicked show-going time, 12.30am curtain, Hawaiian time, yet draw a full house. The concert was smartly paced and packaged to suit all camps in the Presley following. There were the old hits, Love Me, Blue Suede Shoes, Hound Dog, Johnny Be Good, Long Tall Sally, Recent Clicks, Suspicious Minds, Burning Love, What Now My Love, and Soulful Slices, CC Rider, Something and Fever, the latter with the classic Presley shuffles uh, from the hips on downwards. Wayne Harada also talks about the, the splendidly nimble string section consisting of some of our symphony musicians um, from Hawaii. Yesterday's show reaffirms Presley's and manager Colonel Tom Parker's philanthropic fondness for Hawaii. Like the enduring nature of Kui Lee's music, the incandescence of Presley is incomparable. Yeah, I think he hits all the, the right notes. It's a good thorough review and I I love the word incandescent. I mean, that's a, a good description. Elvis Presley, period. But during this concert, I mean, it's he is glowing and he nails just about everything. And uh, interesting that he does highlight uh, specific songs. It's a good thorough review. And I think he's right on, on, on all cases. It went off very, very well. The ratings were in early. They knew that they had dominated in Japan. Huge ratings there. So just when you would think that everybody was exhausted and would be just quite happy to go back to the hotel and try and unwind. No, uh, the arena was uh, emptied. Elvis was back and they were doing the um, insert tracks for the television version. Marty Passetta also had to go to work and edit the uh, live special down by 10 minutes um, for the delayed telecast into Europe. But they now had to sort of uh, get back on stage and record the five songs for the inserts, um, which is probably the last thing that anybody felt like doing, you would think. Well, for sure. We all know that when Elvis has done a performance, like he is sprinting to the to the Cadillac, back to the hotel, and he's he's done. So to have to keep working afterwards must have been pretty jarring to his system and to everybody's system. Oh, look, I think uh, I think you can see that everybody's nerves are fraying a little bit. So they they did five songs. They did Blue Hawaii, Ku'uipo, No More, which they unfortunately didn't use because I think that was probably the nicest of the songs that they did or the nicest rendition. A Hawaiian wedding song, Early Morning Rain. Um, now, it's quite interesting, actually, during that session to just really, I think you can 
get a really uh, interesting picture, certainly of the rapport uh, between Elvis and um, Marty Pacetta. There's a bit of banter back and forth. Everybody makes a mistake at one point. The band makes a mistake. Elvis makes a mistake. Marty Pacetta makes some sort of technical mistake that he had to apologise for. And Elvis says, well, you know, everyone's entitled to one stupid mistake in that sort of way that he did. Uh, Someone coughed. uh, One of the crew coughed and um, ruined one of the takes. And, you know, I think Elvis had had enough, but he, uh, you know, he was professional. And when Marty Pacetta asked him to do another take of one particular one, he, you know, he, he, he just did it without any complaint. And uh, it, so, so that was interesting to see the to see the rapport there. Uh, and they finished off with Early Morning Rain. And I think probably if there was any of the tracks that they did that perhaps could have benefited from another take, it was probably that one. But I think Marty Pacetta was smart enough to realise that everybody had had enough by then. And, you know, they would uh, um, let it stand as it was. And it certainly wasn't a bad version. It was a nice version. But how did you see the, uh, the recording of those insert tracks? I don't want to say that they're dispensable. I mean, I can understand their place in the in the broadcast version and and they make good sense and they're they're Hawaiian songs. No More is is one of my favorite movie songs. It's a wonderful wonderful tune. I guess they all ended up on that Mahalo from Elvis album that was put out after his death, I think on the one side of that record anyways. So they're nice performances. Again, Elvis seems like he's done with this. He doesn't seem super duper engaged. Doesn't even look as as great as he did you know, just an hour before on stage uh, during the concert. But the songs are nice and uh, and good versions. And it was, you could tell though, it was a matter of this is, we're not loving this too much. This is not, you know, super great. This is just business. Let's get this in the can. Let's move along. But they work out pretty good. They're not bad. Now, these are just some of the audience figures from the initial broadcast. These are RCA's uh, publicity figures, so I guess we just have to bear that in mind. 91.8% of the Philippine population watched, 25% of the Hong Kong population. Um, it was actually also relayed into uh, or relayed from Hong Kong via Macau to China. 70 to 80% of the television sets in South Korea, 37.8% uh, in Japan. Now, we know that the um, audience figures of uh, 1.5 billion for that broadcast and uh, delayed telecast, uh, they've been questioned perhaps with good reason, but I don't think it really matters, does it, Gary? Because by any estimation, it dominated ratings live and delayed and then again when it was repackaged for television. So don't think we really need to get too hung up on whether it really was one and a half billion, do we? No, I mean, it's, 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 even even if the number is is sort of fudged, it's it, it's meant to depict the enormity of it. I mean, you can't overstate, I think, the significance of this as a television event. Numbers aside, no doubt, it, it was huge, and it ranks up there with the biggest. Now, you know, it's so different nowadays. Things are are huge and you can watch them on your phone sitting who knows where. But back in that day, it, it was different, and so a large, huge swath of the whole planet watch this. There's no denying numbers aside. There's no denying the hugeness. Uh, Marty Passetta said, uh, once again, we're referring to his interview in the Desert Sun. Uh, what I was told by NBC and others is that every third person on Earth saw that first show when it went out. Um, in Africa and places like that, it played in theatres uh, where they didn't have television. But one thing that is, and I had misremembered this, I, I had thought, uh, you know, even the Colonel had been so caught up in the emotion and there had been a real 
emotional connection at that point between Elvis and him personally face to face. But uh, when I went back to read it again, and we're referring to Peter Gorolnik's uh, biography again, uh, no, it wasn't face to face. Colonel wrote him a letter at 3 a.m. from <laughs> wherever he was, the next room. <laughs> Oh boy. So, um, anyway, this is Garalnik's take on that letter. Uh, not long afterward, uh, the Colonel wrote Elvis a letter. Dateline, Sunday morning, 3am, January 14, 1973. It may have expressed as much sentiment as the Colonel had ever committed to paper, as he declared defiantly that they didn't need to hug each other to show their feelings, because they could tell just by looking at one another from the stage and from the floor how the other felt. And uh, the Colonel said, I always know when I do my part, you always do yours in your own way and in your feeling in how to do it best. That is why you and I are never at each other when we are doing our work in our own best way possible at all times. Interesting wording, isn't it? It's sort of, um, you know, it's it's you and I and no one else matters is sort of the, the sentiment really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And it's funny, you know, he, again, we can say things about the Colonel, most of them are true, but even he, the enormity of this, the success was not lost on him. And, and maybe there was a bit of emotion, you know, wow, look at us. And here is one case where you got to say that each did do his part. I mean, there was a lot of logistical things and we can talk about the players, Marty Pacetta, etc. But Colonel did do quite a, this was quite a Colonel achievement. But again, like he had the product and that's the only way he could have done this. Could Elvis have been successful without Colonel Parker? I would think so. Uh, Colonel Parker without Elvis? You know, maybe not so much. Definitely he had the product and it came off well. You know, but benefit of the doubt, maybe he doesn't want to go over into the room and bother Elvis with his friends or whatever. Anyways, it was nice that he took the time and it was a bit of a moment and it's nice. Let's just accept it as being, you know, a nice moment. And he also, and he concluded, um, you above all make all of it work by being the leader and the talent without your dedication to your following. It couldn't have been done. So, you know, that's a, that is a nice sentiment because un unfortunately uh, things would not remain that warm between them, sadly. But uh, yes, that is a, that is a, a, a nice moment in time. So Gary, to summarize this episode, as we've, we've talked about uh, the music and the significance of the music. Have you had any sort of perhaps final observations about how how it all came together? We'll go into some of the uh, sort of uh, camera work and the presentation for television next time, but uh, just purely about the music. Well, it's uh, it's a really interesting story as, as you've presented it with the background information and the lead up to the whole thing. But I think, you know, I've, I've kept coming back to the product. I mean, a lot of people did a lot of good work to make this happen, but it wouldn't have even have been attempted were it not for Elvis Presley's way with a song, his abilities and his ability to pull off something like this. In terms of performance, I'm telling you there's, there's the three, there's 56, there's 69, and there's Aloha. They are the three major signposts, the major points in Elvis's trajectory that Again, for the uninitiated, you would package something that would contain those three years and those three moments. And if they are not profoundly moved, by, then they never will be. Aloha is 
the final triumph, I always refer to it as, the last time he really scaled the heights and did something worldwide majestic that was that was not only stunning in its execution and what it was in terms of entertainment, but performance, his craft. We've talked about a couple of the highlights along the way. They are nothing less than the, the finest moments in a career loaded with fine moments. It is now it's not like 56 and it's not like 69, but Aloha from Hawaii represents the some of the very pinnacles of what he could do. And oh well I don't feel that way about American Shoulder. I don't feel and I, I understand it's all subjective, but because I feel it, I'm telling you it's there. It's there to be felt and you can you can see and hear those things at those moments. They are there, whether you really latch onto them, that's your own thing. But they exist. That is a magnificent moment, American Trilogy and What Now My Love, other other moments in the show. It is as grand as music in this idiom can be, and it's a performance for the ages, and it is one of the major highlights of a career, as I've said, Load it with highlights. Um, so when, you, when you're talking about 69, are you referring to back in Vegas live performance for the first time? Um, or are you thinking more of the 68, what they refer to as the 68 um, comeback special? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm referring specifically to his American sound recordings, the work with oh, Chips. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, yeah, I see. The yep. work with Chips gotcha. in, in Memphis. That was the reclaiming of the crown on the heels of 68, which was magnificent. So that's 68. To 70 is that moment, and, and it's one of the three with Aloha and 56. Just to conclude this episode, could any other entertainer at that time, a solo entertainer, have the following or the influence or the ability to pull off something of this nature? At, at that time, no. I, I, I don't think so. Frank Sinatra was, of course, just as massive in terms of, you know, just sheer weight of personality and craft and and uh, stardom and 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 I think you know maybe the kids dug Sinatra and they got him he was cool he was a he was a winner but not in the same way as Presley generations I think tapped into him for kind of the same reasons because of him his smile his head movements the way he the, just the way he was as a as a as a person as a performer his way with the song i think it was truly a, a unique performer that yeah he all over the world and all over the age spectrum he he appealed and i don't think this would have been attempted if he didn't exist like i don't think that sinatra would say you know what for for all age groups and for all areas of the world i would say only presley at this point could have appealed to the number of people that he did, only Presley. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed Gary's analysis of the music of Aloha from Hawaii as much as I did. Please stick around after the credits. We'll be back with a little bit more on Elvis and the Colonel. In our next episode, we'll be talking about the television special that aired uh, domestically in the US in April. Also, the double live album, the single, and some of the things that were going on behind the scenes as RCA tried to get greater control over the goldmine of Elvis's back catalogue. Don't forget our companion newsletter on Substack, lots of links and additional background information there. You can follow us and get in touch on Facebook, Tumblr, or at the Deck 4 webpage. Our policy for the fair use of copyrighted material for commentary and critique is at the Deck 4 webpage as well. Thank you to Steve Collins for tech support. Thank you to Gainesville for our music, and thank you so much for listening. 
Original music by Gainesville. Keeping the spirit of Tom Petty alive in Europe and playing great classic rock and roll. Check them out at gainesville-band.de and link to their socials. The Deck 4 podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com. If you love travel, now more than ever, it's important to listen to the experts. The Armstrong and Burton book series, Dark Secrets Hoard Powerful Families in 1980s Britain, available from Amazon and book retailers everywhere. Find out more, link to the Deck 4 web and Facebook pages and subscribe to the Deck 4 newsletter, all at georgefairbrother.com. You know, one of the reasons that they were that they put together this um, satellite broadcast was because um, they did want to do something for the fans overseas in the absence of touring. Now we know that there might have been some issues with Colonel Parker's citizenship and his passport, and you made the point that it was a little bit ridiculous that you know Elvis couldn't go without Colonel Parker, even though someone like Joe Esposito would have been a perfectly competent and you know suitable. Uh, you know, road manager for these remote tours. But do you think there was possibly an element that Elva, that um, Colonel Parker might have been, given Elvis's propensity to carry guns and um, some personal medication, do you think there might have been an element of Colonel Parker thinking that Elvis needed to be protected perhaps from unfortunate incidents with customs? And, and this is why Elvis Presley requires study, not just buying a record, not just reading the book, but reading all kinds of books and getting all kinds of material from all kinds of sources because there's it's never black and white. It's so easy. When I first read about Colonel and his Dutch heritage and his, his life, I thought, oh, okay, well, there you go. That's the only reason Elvis never toured worldwide. Because, like you say, Colonel thought, I really can't go with them because of my immigration status. So then if, if Elvis, if I can't go, Elvis can't go. But I think another layer is Colonel was concerned if Elvis hung out with entertainment types in another part of the world, somebody might get in his ear and Elvis might think, wow, maybe I am getting robbed or maybe I can do better. You know, Colonel wanted to keep him insulated. So... Colonel can't travel with him. Colonel doesn't want to lose his property. Those are very probably true, but cynical ways to look at it. I think the logistics, the hugeness of a world tour, a European tour, an Asian tour, whatever, would have been a big ask for these. And Joe Esposito, as competent as he was, and as competent as Elvis's gang was, you know, they were just good old southern boys or, or Chicago like Joe, maybe it would have been a big ask for them to put together all the business that would have had to be done. And then you throw in another part of, you know, Elvis travels through the states, no problem. He can tour the states, no problem. If he's got medical issues, he can fly in this doctor or fly in that doctor, see local doctors. Everybody loves Elvis. They'll do whatever he wants or he asks of them. You know, it might have been different. Well, it would have been different overseas. And it might have been a hard, a big ask for Elvis to just 
to, to not be Elvis, to not pack heat, to not pack his shoebox full of whatever he needed, whatever he thought he needed to live. So there's too much, there's a lot going on. It's too easy to say bad Colonel wouldn't let him tour. And who knows, you read about too, the hard slogs through the South or the Midwest. Those concert tours were difficult, physically straining on Elvis or whatever. And his level of, you know, dialing into that was obviously making it a challenge as well. It would have been a big ask. Maybe it would have been one of those challenges we talk about. Maybe it would have been, wow, this is new. I'm going to rise to the occasion. But part of me thinks it would have been too hard in, in many ways. So maybe there's lots to talk about. So certainly, I'll go to one place, my beloved Hawaii, stick a camera in there, broadcast it to the whole world. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And we could get into the weeds as to the whys and wherefores, but the perfect way to go around the world for Elvis and it worked out just like that as as we've seen <laughs> 